Podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. We're celebrating our 100th episode with radio's most famous broadcast, The War of the Worlds, from the Mercury Theater on the air. The War of the Worlds was the 17th episode of the CBS radio series The Mercury Theater on the Air. The Mercury Theater was founded in 1937 by Orson Welles and producer John Hausman. The company's first stage production was a retelling of Julius Caesar set in a fascist near future meant to evoke the political climates of Italy and Nazi Germany. The show was a smash hit. The New York Times advised other theater makers to move over and make room for the Mercury Theater. At the same time, Wells was gaining a reputation as a radio actor, most famously as the sinister voice of the shadow. At one point, Wells had so much radio work, he hired an ambulance to race him from one studio to the next. On the heels of this success, CBS invited Wells and Hausman to bring the Mercury Theater to the radio. The network asked Wells to adapt classic literature into one-hour broadcasts. Wells jumped at the chance to apply the radio techniques he had learned working on such shows as The March of Time and The Columbia Workshop. A particular interest to Wells was the use of narration. According to Wells, a narrator brought more intimacy to a radio broadcast and helped to draw the listener into the story. Wells' strong reliance on a narrator was relatively new in radio and informed much of his approach, including the program's name, First Person Singular. The Mercury Theater's first series of adaptations included Dracula, Treasure Island, and A Tale of Two Cities. CBS only committed to nine episodes, but the network was impressed enough to extend the program. There were two significant changes, though. The name was changed to The Mercury Theater on the Air, and the program was moved from Monday to Sunday nights. Although well-reviewed by critics, the Mercury Theater had failed to attract a sponsor, and Monday night was deemed too lucrative a spot for an experimental program that brought in zero advertising dollars. Instead, Mercury has moved to Sunday night opposite the popular NBC program The Chase and Sanborn Hour, starring comedian Edgar Bergen and his ventriloquist dummy, Charlie McCarthy. No advertiser would sponsor a show scheduled against Bergen and McCarthy. With the switch to Sunday, CBS enjoyed the critical praise garnered by Wells without losing a lucrative advertising opportunity. Meanwhile, Wells enjoyed relative creative freedom unhampered by the fickle demands of a sponsor. In October 1938, Wells told producer John Hausman and co-director Paul Stewart he wanted to create a radio play in the style of a live news broadcast. The three discussed various science fiction works, including The Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, before deciding on the 1898 novel The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Hausman later told an interviewer he doubted very much Orson Welles had ever read the book. On October 24th, one week before the broadcast, Hausman gave newly hired writer Howard Cook the job of adapting the 40-year-old novel into a radio play, emphasizing Wells' desire to incorporate news bulletins into the structure of the script. Three days later, Cook called Hausman and told him the book was too old and boring to make anything resembling an engaging radio play. Hausman lied to Cook, telling him that Wells insisted they do the War of the Worlds and would hear no excuses. In reality, Wells had abandoned the radio program to work on 
on his next theater project and would not be seen in the studio again until a few hours before the fateful broadcast. With help from Hausman, Cook completed a script and, after the first rehearsal, brought a recorded copy to Wells, who hated it, particularly the second half. Wells believed the only way to save the show was to expand and intensify the fake news bulletins. Hausman, Cook, and Stewart all agreed. After a frantic few days of rewrites, the news portion of the script was expanded from 30 to 40 minutes, and pains were taken to create the illusion that the invasion was unfolding in real time. On October 30th, 1938, mere hours before the broadcast, 23-year-old Orson Welles finally arrived at CBS Studios for a last-minute rehearsal and immediately started making changes. The first thing Wells did was slow the pace of the opening scenes, extending the musical interludes and adding extraneous dialogue to make the news bulletins feel more real. He also asked Kenneth Delmar to do an impression of President Roosevelt when performing a monologue by the Secretary of Interior. At the time, all major networks prohibited performers from impersonating the president for fear listeners would be fooled. Like most rules, Wells waved it away with a smirk and a shrug. At 8 p.m., listeners fortunate enough to tune in at the beginning of the broadcast heard Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1, followed by an announcer proclaiming what everyone involved in the program believed to be obvious. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. If there was a concern in the studio that night, it was a fear of ridicule. In 1938, science fiction was not the mainstream genre it is today. Stories of invaders from Mars were considered silly, the nonsense of children's serials and pulp magazines. Many of the Mercury players honestly believed the show would be laughed off the air. The next morning, though... Nobody was laughing. The War of the Worlds broadcast became a legend overnight. The realism of the play led thousands of Americans to believe the country was actually under attack by a foreign power, inducing nationwide hysteria. The front page headline on the October 31st edition of the New York Times declared, Radio listeners in panic, taking war drama as fact. And the rest, as they say, is history. Or is it? Did Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater really terrorize the nation with what they thought was a childish Halloween lark? The answer is complicated. Yes, hundreds of people were frightened and alarmed by the broadcast. They called police stations and newspapers inquiring about the veracity of the radio reports. Many of these people phoned relatives or went next door to their neighbors to warn them about the attack. In this way, the fear spread somewhat beyond the small listenership of the program. However, very few people believed the country was being invaded by actual Martians. Most tuned in late or were only half listening when they heard realistic reports of armed clashes with the military and a spreading cloud of poison gas. For the most part, those who were terrified by the broadcast quickly figured out the truth, whether it was in the form of assurances from local authorities or simply looking up the name of the program in the radio listings. But where did this notion of mass hysteria come from? The answer is pretty simple. Sloppy journalism. Newspapers printed sensationalized headlines based on anecdotes and rumors, many of them second or third hand without ascertaining the truth of those claims. The same unverified stories of suicides, heart attacks, and mass exodus were reprinted over and over again throughout the country. According to Brad Schwartz, author of Broadcast Hysteria, Orson Welles, War of the Worlds, and the Art of Fake News, Rather than acknowledge that their information was spotty and incomplete, most newspapers wildly generalized. They focused on isolated cases of extreme hysteria and, by either implication or overstatement, made it seem that that behavior was widespread. The notion of a nationwide panic was later legitimized by Princeton psychology professor Hadley Cantrell. In 1940, he wrote a book called The Invasion from Mars, a study in the psychology of panic, which claimed to both explain and 
and quantify the alleged mass panic caused by the broadcast. It became a classic in its field. However, many modern scholars question the study's scientific rigor. Again, according to author Brad Schwartz, Cantrell's team deliberately oversampled people who were frightened by the broadcast, ignored data from listeners who knew it was fiction, and only interviewed listeners in New Jersey, where all accounts agree the panic was most intense. What's more, Cantrell's estimation of how many listeners were frightened, approximately one million, far exceeds the number of people who actually tuned into the broadcast. According to a rating service that surveyed radio listeners the night of the broadcast, only 2% of the 5,000 households contacted stated they were listening to CBS or the Mercury Theater on the air. On the other hand, some historians have tried too hard to dismiss the events of the broadcast. A 2013 article in Slate magazine famously claimed, Janet Jackson's 2004 wardrobe malfunction remains far more significant in the history of broadcast regulation than Orson Welles' trickery. This type of glib comment belittles the genuine terror felt by the few listeners, particularly in the New Jersey area, who believed the broadcast was real. Although exaggerated, the fear caused by the War of the Worlds led to a significant national debate about the power of media and the freedom of expression, a debate that is just as relevant today as it was 80 years ago. So now let's listen to The War of the Worlds from the Mercury Theater on the Air, originally broadcast October 30th, 1938. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen to the voices. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October... Business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley service estimated that 32 million people, 
were listening in on radios. Next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern state, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Capacita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. that never loses favor. The ever-popular Stardust. Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. Ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton. I'm, I'm, I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. I'll ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides the ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communications. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time, Mr. Post. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? <laughs> Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. They... Although that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Phillips, I cannot account for it. Oh, by the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. <laughs> well, that seems a safe enough distance. Uh, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While he reads it, let me remind you that we, we are speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer Professor Pearson. Uh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Uh, Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson... Could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Oh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past ten minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our New York studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles. 
and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millett and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. We take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. Paint for you a word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, but something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it, yes. I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. It's curious spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Uh, uh, would you mind standing one side, please? While the police are pushing the crowd back, here's Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmot... Uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, a step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmot. Well, I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Uh, louder, please, closer. Yes. <clears throat> I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half dozing and half... Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmot, and uh, then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio... Kind of halfway. Yes, Mr. Wilmot. And then you saw something. Well, not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound like this. Uh, kind of like a Fourth of July rocket. Yes, then what? I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was to sleep and dreaming. Yes. I seen a kind of greenish streak and then zingle. Something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you very much. Yeah, you want me to tell No, that's quite on. all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm, where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. The car's headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object's half buried. Now, some of the more daring souls now are venturing near the edge. Yeah, the silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. <laughs> One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with a policeman. Now, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. 
Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, Mr. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see it's cylindrical uh, shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw in the... Thing must be hollow. He's moving. Keep back there. Keep back there. Keep those men back. Keep those idiots back. Come on. Take off. The top's loose. Stand back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's calling someone or something. I can see turning out of that black hole two luminous disks. The eyes, it might be a face, might be almost... But heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. I can see the thing's body now. It's large. It's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face... Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, but I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is... That's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seemed to oh, it quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words. And, well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen... Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted and the professor moves around one side... Studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes him head on. Oh, Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! Oh, the whole 
automobiles caught up by the woods. The fires, the, the gas tanks, tanks for the automobiles are spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as, as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith, commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by direct wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. 
That, that is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now, here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. The office of the director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, Vice President in Charge of Operations. We have received a request from the State Militia of Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the State Militia at Trenton. We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position... Surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry. Without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their cocky uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. Looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, uh, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute. I, I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmot Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. What? It's, it's standing on legs, actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. 
The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area. And we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here is a special bullet in New York. Cables have been received from English... French and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voiced the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder similar to the first embedded in the Great Swamp, 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened in the fighting machine rig. They are taking up a position in the foothills of Watchung Mountains. Another, another, another Bolton from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Morristown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. 
We've, uh, we've run special wires to the artillery line in adjacent villages to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Watching Mountains. Range 32 meters. 32 meters. Direction 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! Forty yards to the right, sir. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire. Hit, sir. Got the tripod of one of them. That's up. The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift, 50, 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection, 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. Can see the shell land, sir. Letting off a smoke. What is it? Black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Flying close to the ground. Moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection, 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire. Still can't see, sir. Smoke's coming nearer. Get the range. Meters. <coughs> 23 meters. 23 meters. Projection, 22 Army bombing plane V-843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Volt, commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. This is Bolt reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine partially crippled. Believed hit by shell from Army gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River into the Jersey marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. Four hundred. Two hundred. There they go. The giant arm raised. 
Green flash. They're spraying us with flame. 2,000 feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. Eight... Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of... This is Newark, New Jersey. Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Reach at South Street. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use routes 7, 23, 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over, over Raymond Boulevard... QX2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling 8X3R. Come in, please. This is 8X3R coming back at 2X2L. Eyes reception. Eyes reception. K, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? Speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway is still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor, all, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise in crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute, the... The enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five... Five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. 
seem to be time and space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. The steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's... It's 50 feet. listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. I set down these notes on paper. I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present furtive existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I look down at my blackened hands and I try to connect them with a professor who lives at Princeton and who on the night of October 20th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife... 
My colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my... my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? Writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. Find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. Keep watch at the window. Time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. Smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there's a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. Morning. Morning. Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas is lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm had passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here in their wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. Push on north. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. Come to a chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are ripe. Fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature. A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. Push on north. I find dead cows in a brackish field and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy in a silo. Main standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse. Deserted by the sea. Stride the silo, purchase a weathercock. The arrow points north. North. Next day, I come to a city. A city vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off as if, as if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. Reached the outskirts, I found Newark. Newark, undemolished but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it, and it rose up and became a man. A man armed with a large knife. Stop! Where do you come from? I come from 
From many places. A long time ago from Princeton. Princeton, huh? That's near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for people. Hey, what was that? Did you hear something just then? No. Only a bird. A live bird. Yeah. You get to know that birds have shadows these days. Say, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? No. They've gone over to New York. Night, the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, Fly. Then it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. Two of us left. Yeah. They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it? I was in the militia. National Guard. <laughs> That's good. There wasn't any war, any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do to us? I felt it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. A Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematically, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of our rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Yes, but if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We men as men, we're finished. We don't know enough. We gotta learn plenty before we got a chance. We've gotta live and keep free while we learn, see? I've thought it all out, see? Well, tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. That's what it got it that, that's what it gotta be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All those little office workers that used to live in these houses, they be no good. They haven't any stuff in them. They used to run. Run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuter's train in the morning. Afraid they could can if they didn't. Running back at night. Afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. 
Yeah, and on Sundays. Worried about the hereafter. The Martians, they'll be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages. Good food, careful breeding, no worries. Yeah, after a week or so of chasing around the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians are going to make pets of some of them. Train them to do tricks. Who knows, get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah, and some maybe. They'll train to hunt us. Oh, no, it's impossible. Human yes, beings. they will. There's men who do it gladly. One of them never comes after me, but... In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the Earth? I got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones, they're big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to see, huh? We'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weaklings. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go. All right. Give you a chance, didn't I? Won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, we got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? Get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. May not be so much we have to learn before... Listen. Just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left. Not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men... Men who've learned the way how. May even be in our time. Gee. Imagine having one of them lovely things with a heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan. Yeah. You. Me. A few more of us. We'd own the world. I see. Hey. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. Well, after parting with the artilleryman, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel, entered that silent tube, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. Reached 14th Street, and there again were... Black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered up through the 30s and 40s, stood alone on Times Square, caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. He made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. Walked up Broadway in the direction of that that strange powder, past silent shop windows, displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks. Past the Capitol Theater, silent, dark. Past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks near Columbus Circle. 
I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. Over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. Hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine, standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I, I, I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I, I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street, and from there I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground. And there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all, man's defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God, as wisdom, has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space... No life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I've conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space. But a remote dream may be. Maybe that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve. To them and not to us. The future ordained, perhaps. Ah, strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study in Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record, begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean-cut, hard and silent under the dawn of that last Great day. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character, to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS.
You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian, it's Halloween. Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations coast to coast has brought you The War of the World by H.G. Wells, the 17th in its weekly series of dramatic broadcasts featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. Next week, we present a dramatization of three famous short stories. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. was The War of the Worlds from the Mercury Theater on the Air here on Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And that is our 100th episode celebration. We picked the famous or perhaps infamous (laughs) War of the Worlds for our 100th podcast. And by the way, before we move on, congratulations. On our 100th broadcast. Yes, everybody we're go drinking. Ahead. Everybody go ahead and drink on the air. Mm. Mm. So uh, interesting for so many reasons. And Joshua in his write-up at the top, which was brilliant, and thank you uh, for that background. In case somebody happened to not know this history of the War of the Worlds and the impact that it had uh, socially for years to come of to this day, I think it's interesting – that I can find junior high kids that I teach and they don't know anything about old-time radio, but they've heard of War of the Worlds. Mm -hmm. And it's still part of our lexicon. It's still part of our mythology. But as we talked about, as we entered into this, this podcast isn't really about that. And not only that, you can see 900 documentaries about that. (laughs) What this podcast is about is about production and direction and story writing and performance and the impact of the story itself. And I think 90% of the people that can identify War of the Worlds and know what it is, not the book, the uh, yeah. radio broadcast, have never heard it. Yep. And it's never really discussed, well, what about the show itself? Was it any good? And that's, that's what we're going to do today. Although we all <laughs> agree we'd love to talk about the other part of it, <laughs> hours and hours and hours. Uh, we discovered just a few weeks ago that Tim... <laughs> had never heard My secret shame war of the worlds and so you listened to it for this podcast for the first time yes i've listened to it oh this is probably my 15th time i would guess that i've, I've turned to it and listened to it and you I joshua lost count it's yeah, the right. old radio show i've heard the most right wow so what was it like tim when you started to listen to this expectations and, and yeah, other... Well, the context in which the main way that I knew about War of the Worlds broadcast, and I say this because I think I'm not the only one, there might be some listeners out there as well, is from the movie Buckaroo Banzai. Which is a movie I've never seen, and I'm supposed <laughs> to see that. Everybody says I'm supposed to see that. You should see it. It's a lot of fun. But there's a big plot point based on this broadcast. So that was my favorite reference, even though going into listening to it, I know like this probably has nothing to do with Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> <laughs> and, and did it? Yeah. Were you right? I was right. 
but it, I really was like braced for like, all right, I'm going to listen to the reality of this. And I, I feel it transitions out of a little more abstractness into this is we are broadcasting something that's meant to sound totally true. But I think the top doesn't so much. Right. I, I sort of had to force myself to be patient to the top because like this is going to pay off, I believe. Uh, and ultimately felt that it did. And your history with it? Do you remember the first time, Joshua? Well, boy, War of the Worlds as a story is a huge part of my love of science fiction. My brother and I first stumbled across the 1953 George Powell War of the Worlds movie when we were very young. Mm -hmm. It was on reruns all the time, and any time we found it in the TV guide, we would sit down and watch it. So by the time I first heard War of the Worlds, the radio broadcast, I was probably in seventh grade, but I had seen the War of the Worlds movie probably 15 times mm -hmm. before that. And I absolutely loved the old radio version of the story, with the exception being being a little confused and bored by the last 20 minutes. Mm. And then, in, I think I was a sophomore in high school, and I read H.G. Wells' original novel and loved that, went back to the radio show, and then have a very different perspective on right. the last 20 minutes of the broadcast. <laughs> uh, so that's sort of my history with it. But. In a previous podcast, Tim described the voice of Ernest Chappell mm -hmm. of Quiet Please as a warm and dangerous blanket. And the opening of War of the Worlds, the monologue voiced by Orson Welles, is my warm and dangerous right. blanket. I can't tell <laughs> right. you how many nights I fell asleep listening to those first 20 minutes of yeah. War of the Worlds. Yeah. That opening monologue, I was just like, I am loving this. And I'm dying to know if this is from the book, because I have not read the book. It is from straight the book, book I, updated right, right. for the 20th century, yes. My uh, history with it, of course, you know, listening to it uh, a few times before the, what's his name? Tom Cruise, War of the Worlds? Is yeah, that his yeah, name, Tom Cruise? Yeah, 2005. Yeah, I they, love War of the Worlds so much I suffered through that. And I think we've had this discussion before. I'm one of these people that uh, is constantly defending that movie. Hmm. I don't like him much. Like, I do. Like, he's done movies I like. But that movie... I really enjoyed it. And the reason I enjoyed it is because I have the background of the book and the Mercury Theater on the air. I know the story. And I loved their perspective of it. And that was to zoom in on one random dude mm. and just follow him through this chaos and what he was experiencing. This is going to come into play later <laughs> with what I'm going to talk about. But his, oh my God, the Martians are coming. It would be like just... Pointing blindly at a, a map, picking some random guy and saying, let's just follow him, see what he does. Because by the end of the movie, he has nothing to do with the solution. He's not part of the problem. He's not like in Independence Day, we're following the guy that ends up, I'll learn how to fly the alien spaceship. You know, we're not following key characters in the resolution. We're following random dude running for his life. And it's two hours of him running for his life, protecting his kids at all costs. And I really like that perspective a lot. I thought that was really cool. We never really catch anything else that's going on other than his world, which was pure hell, which is not the book. I get mm -hmm. it. But I really liked that perspective. That being said, Orson certainly uh, through his own perspective on H.G. Wells' book. Uh, you mentioned in the opening that Orson, I don't think Orson's ever read the yep. book. Did you ever read about the... Uh, it was years later they did a, a radio interview together, I think in Dallas, and they were in the same studio together. Orson and, Welles and John Hausman? No, Orson Welles and H.G. Wells. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And it was the first time they'd ever met, and they were on the air together, and this guy was attacking your show caused nationwide panic, and the two of them 
I'm really paraphrasing this, but you should read the uh, the transcription of it. The two of them are, um, no, that didn't happen at all, and he defended Orson. Yeah. Well, as much as Orson Welles updates the story, he, well, uh, Howard Cook updated the story right, uh, with right. help from the producers, it's very true to the mm-hmm. book, so I can see him enjoying it. Right. Let's delve into the, uh, yeah. to the plot. This story is a first act and a second act. Mm-hmm. They're completely different from each other. There's a definite hard break of the car and a going in a brand new direction, uh, format to narrative to everything. So that's an interesting thing to discuss. So but let's, let's start with the front Let's half. state in the first act, that first 40 minutes, is the most brilliant radio ever done. Period. The end. Everything about it I love. I, you know, Tim said it started slow, and, and it was interesting to hear that Orson slowed came in, down. slowed it down. I did not know that until our opening. Mm-hmm. In my notes, I wrote, I love how long it's taking. I like how far they go with the songs. From mm-hmm. That's uh, a long time to just let yeah. a band play. <laughs> uh, what's his, I always forget the band. Oh, Raymond Raquello. Yeah, Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Yeah. And it, they go to a different orchestra, too. Later, yeah. yeah. I think they go up to like four musical interludes with bands, and then they just desperately put in like piano music as things start to go really bad. And those right. are only little snippets. Because the pace... Right. Builds, And I think that was yes. Orson Welles' idea is that let's have this very slow so we can earn this frantic pace and there's something to differentiate from the later portions of the broadcast. After I was done listening to this, I had a different perspective on this. What I, to me is like a little first half of the first act. Mm-hmm. Because going in knowing like, okay, this is going to be sort of realistic, radio, veritat, whatever. Um, it did try my patience a little bit of like, all right, sit to this orchestra bit. Come back to the story, a little bit of update orchestra set to the music bit that i just took it on faith like this will pay off but it is asking something of me later i was thinking about each of those little musical interludes is supposed to sort of represent a longer period of time because when you come back something that's happened that is clearly much later in time than when we left off a few minutes ago so i was really fascinated by the idea that these musical interludes work both as setting up the veracity of you're listening to the radio and it actually serves as the same thing that the music is used for in standard radio shows of transition. And one of the things that they did do was take out a lot of the references to passages of time for exactly that reason in the early drafts of the script. Mm. Apparently there were references to the next day or mm. several hours later and they crossed all those out to get this really intense immediate feel even though Clearly, more time has passed than 40 minutes. The Martians conquer the entire world in 40 minutes. Militias show up, and they drive from location to location. So it doesn't actually track uh, from linear time, but it feels that way. It feels like you're being dragged through this ordeal. one of those Orson Welles things of, like, I'm just going to insist the audience go with this and figure it out, and I'm not going to explain it. And my experience was like, okay, I'll go with that. I resent it a little, but I'll do this. <laughs> the uh, length of the in-between, the, the music interludes and the regular programming and all that, it just, to me, it lulls you into forgetting that you're listening to a radio drama and Lore of the Worlds. And there are moments where you can actually think, oh, I've tuned into Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. <laughs> and it's the intent of it. It echoes that opening monologue from Orson Welles where he uses the word complacent. And humans went about mm. complacently about their business. And that's what you're doing in those radio broadcasts, just sitting back, listening to music, no idea what's about to fall upon us. Again, I'll say it again, really interesting to find out that three hours to go, he made those adjustments because 
I find them brilliant. I don't know if a director today would have the ability or the courage to keep that up that long for that long and let things develop that slowly. And for the enthusiasm you guys have with these musical breaks, I have that enthusiasm over the silences that happen later. Oh, God, yes. We share those. There's so much power in those silences. Well, if we just jump to my absolute favorite moment in all of old-time radio, period, uh, is in this. My absolute favorite. I can't even give you the right words how much I love the reporter on top of the broadcast building. This is right at the end of those first 40 mm -hmm. minutes. Yeah, The bell's ringing and the evacuation. Oh, and the fog is coming. And the fog, and the, the, it's so rich and beautiful and disturbing and heart-wrenching. And the, and the people are fleeing in boats, and the, they're holding church services, and there's a mass exodus and panic. And then he dies, and we hear just the boat whistles mm-hmm. and the exodus, what that sounds like. And then the silence. Mm-hmm. It is so well done and so terrifying. And there's a part of me that really, really wishes I could go back in history and convince Orson to wait 10 more seconds of silence and then say, the end. (laughs) (laughs) We're done. There's something to be said about that. Uh, That would have been a great ending. There's also the first silence with the reporter, Carl Phillips. Yeah. Yeah. The first time it cuts out, the first time you get the idea that, wow, something really bad is happening. That performance... I think from him mm-hmm. is amazing. And mm-hmm. I, I'm sure our listeners have heard this story, but it's Frank Reddick, who also was the very first shadow on the detective story mm-hmm. hour that the pulp was based on. Oh. And the show, The Shadow, that Orson Welles had just starred in was mm-hmm. based on. So that's a little bit of nerd old-time radio trivia. But he also studied... The recordings of the Hindenburg crash oh, to right. try to capture that desperate, horrified voice of Herbert Morrison That's as he totally on what came tragedy. to mind. Yeah, yep. he was directed Reddick uh, mm-hmm. to incorporate and almost mimic that. Yeah, it was supposed to be a recreation of sorts of the Hindenburg crash. And a lot of the uh, the texture I loved in that scene was. was Interviewing that farmer of like, come a little closer, a little oh, louder, yeah. please. That was lovely. The, that really sells it. The uh, truth of it. Yes. Another one of my favorite moments is just listening to the pilot doing the bombing raid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering, and you guys who are more knowledgeable of history of like, I felt like X minus one just grew out of this scene. Modern, well, not modern, but modern to them, radio sci-fi started here. You're talking about just with the bomber describing... Yeah, the repeating yeah. things back to each other, yeah. statistics, numbers. Uh, I've talked in the past of just the uh, tension of, I'm just doing my job. That's very true. Uh, X-1 has a lot of suspense built around the mundane, yeah. everyday life of a job. And he dives his plane when it looks like it's going to crash at the Martians, the sacrificial moment at the end of his monologue. Yeah, when he disappears... All that silence, everything is so unnerving in this top 40 minutes and so well done and so beautiful. And then there's the second half. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think, listening to it and thinking in terms of the structure of this, the main fault of the second half is just that it's not the first half. I mean, That is exactly right. It suffers only because the first half is so revolutionary and so good. Correct. The second half is quite good. It's just not the first half. It also suffers from the fact that it's a completely different narrative. It's a completely different format. It's a Mm -hmm. completely different way of telling the story. It is such a 90-degree turn. It's really hard to wrap your head around. Now, if I was to listen to this whole thing in Orson narrative, I would not like it. 
I'm not a huge Orson fan. Yeah, I think it'd be good, but it wouldn't be as I, amazing. I, as Orson it is. is so Orson, you know, like he's just so full of himself in everything he says and does, <laughs> and it's hard to get through how much gravitas he gives everything that he's doing, and it just starts to drag and drag and drag. If you're going to change the narrative, if you're going to change it like that, why not change it to a first-hand account, like I was talking about with the movie, but live, as it's happening, instead of from well, a, a criti- journal? A critical part of the story, though, is that radio is gone. Humanity is conquered. Yeah. It is crushed. So you would have to veer completely away from the book. But why at that point go to the book? You haven't been with the book now for 40 minutes. Why are you doing it now? It would have been a lot more exciting and interesting to listen to Orson walking down the street or his character walking down the streets and what he's seeing and what he's instead of him reading a book to us. Then he meets a guy and they have exchange and like, here we go. Uh, the narrative is breaking again, but they don't bother to do things like when he says, let's crawl through the small hole. There's no Foley. There's mm-hmm. no grunting through the mm-hmm. hole. It's just two guys now reading and then back to Orson just reading. Mm-hmm. And it is so drags and it's so boring. They had other choices. And this seemed to me like Orson wanted to talk pretty for 20 minutes. I don't think that's true in that (laughs) Orson Welles thought there was too much of that. And he was one of the voices asking for extending the news broadcast. Right. So I don't don't think it was egotism on his part. Well, egotism casting himself as Professor Pearson, perhaps. But what I like about it is that Orson Welles tries to make something of the contrast i don't yeah. think they just forgot to put foley in those last 20 minutes that was a no, conscious I choice I, on his part this idea that this is the end of the world there is nothing it is silence but it's an artistic choice on his part whether or not it works is a different story and it clearly i believe doesn't work for a lot of people i believe it was an artistic choice and i believe it doesn't work i would have liked to have heard the bird you know for example <laughs> And again, they had a lot of choices. We can't do the live radio broadcast anymore. I get it. But following a guy and hearing his thoughts and having him describe what he's seeing would be a lot more interesting than a guy reading a book to us. Well, I think Orson Welles and this show gets caught up in the concept of the show, which is, back to that original title, First Person Singular. Right. And Orson Welles was pushing this use of narration to try to create slightly more intimate and sophisticated radio drama than you could do without narration. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of the books he had chosen in the past lent themselves better to narration than War of the Worlds. Right. But I, I have to assume there was some obligation to include the mandate of the program, which is narration. So that last bit, it feels so much like an epilogue. Mm-hmm. But it's too long for an epilogue. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. And it's really that interaction with that guy that is the extra thing that makes it stretch out that I like that. Mm-hmm. But you know, if they came to me and said, hey, Tim, <laughs> how can we improve this script? I'd say cut that guy. Yeah, it's not necessary to – I love him. I love the interaction. about the artillery man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah, that whole scene, it doesn't propel the story forward. It doesn't do anything. It explores, explores thematic elements yes. – And I am 100% going to say right now I am in the minority here, but I do really enjoy the dynamic shift between that fast-paced news bulletin style and then we go to the very sobering journals of Professor Pearson. And I think it effectively communicates a shift both in time, Mm -hmm. because clearly the world is 
gone for the most part, and a shift in emotion, because in the first half, we have America valiantly fighting. But you get to the second half, and Pearson and the people he meets are not just physically defeated, but psychologically defeated or damaged, like in the case of the artillery man. We also get to find out the Martians eat people, which is just a fun bit of horror. <laughs> but, you know, the news bulletins present the invasion of Mars in a realistic way. And then the scenes and monologues in the final 20 minutes present another side of that reality, the small details, the struggle to survive, to eat, to retain your humanity. Mm -hmm. Those type of stories that I think we're really familiar with today. It's basically the central concept of The Walking Dead, right? <laughs> year after right. year, you know? There is that. You mentioned it was specifically journals, that interesting movement of it is so strongly about radio. Um, not only just that it is presented in the format of this is all radio broadcast, but it, it popped out at me that... The aliens, their main form of attack is cut communication. The, the more we can keep these people from talking to each other, the more efficiently we can conquer them. Their communication has devolved from radio to the barbarism of books. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's true. And I mean, I 100% see your point of view. When I've listened to this before, I've thought, wow, what if it just ended with the conquering? Yep. However, I so love H.G. Wells' original end that humans do not save themselves. And that's straight from the book. And I so love it. And it's maybe why I forgive it from a dramatic point mm -hmm. of view. That I line about being a reprieve, not for us, but for them. <laughs> right. I like that a lot. I realize I'm probably stretching it here, but I feel like the end, when the professor is reading from the journal and there's no foley, there's no music, just his voice gives the ending a kind of modesty or a sense of... Simplicity that reflects that thematic realization that humanity, in its arrogance, had this assurance of dominion over the planet. But it was saved by bacteria, the humblest thing in God's creation. So a modesty that Orson Welles then comes on <laughs> yeah. to do a post-show speech about and just ruined. <laughs> you're, you're right. I mean, Orson Welles talking as himself always ruins everything. I will agree with you 100%. I understand all of that. I do. I just, they had an opportunity and for whatever reason, time, Orson's uh, weirdness or uh, not even being involved in the rehearsal process till three hours ahead of time. Mm -hmm. But I think that either A, this should have been an hour long all radio broadcast until it cut out and we could still get the humanity wins part by 10 seconds of silence to show passing in time. And a guy coming back on, okay, we have radio signals again. You know, we're back on mm -hmm. communication again. And bacteria killed them. It wouldn't be written mm -hmm. that way. But you could still stay with the entire radio format. You're not wrong. Or the narrative of just following a man. But as it happens, it's just this. It's a lot of Orson talking. <laughs> well, the, the contrast <laughs> is so hard to hear. So jarring and disappointing in some ways right because they probably did not necessarily know how well this first part was going to go correct it was amazing yes. they did so not successful. think it was going to be amazing no. the people doing it thought very little of it based mm -hmm. on some of the reading i have done they were shocked not just by the panic reaction distorted or not mm -hmm. but just by some of the praise for the story they thought it was silly and the news broadcast and the intensification of it was a side effect of worrying about whether people would take it seriously right. so they <clears throat> leaned harder and harder into it and mm -hmm. 
the people actually making the broadcast agreed with you, Eric. <laughs> so they, right. they thought that was the most interesting part of the story is the front half. And it's interesting, they expanded it to 40 minutes and they broke with tradition where usually at the half hour, a station break comes in. Mm-hmm. Instead, it comes in 40 minutes, mm-hmm. which the only time there wasn't a station break was when there was actual or real mm. crisis. Some people have suggested that was part of the scare is that, you know, it was 830 and they didn't break in to tell us that we're listening to the Columbia Broadcasting Network. Right. It just kept going. It's been stated before. Some of the terror came from when you hear on the radio without context right away. Mm. Scenes of battle. And gas being Poison released. gas after World and War I. And then they say, and yeah. this is in New Jersey. No, actually, it jumped out at me because this was 1938. Yep. Yeah, 1938. Yeah. And early on, they say the rumors of war have been quelled. At that point, Germany had taken Czechoslovakia and said, we're done. We're good. Yeah, one of the things I love about the top is that they jump it a year ahead. It's 1939 at the beginning of the mm-hmm. broadcast, which mm-hmm. I think is kind of interesting that they do this near future mm-hmm. to once again make it seem more plausible. Because if you said it in the present, it seems unbelievable. But if you go too far into the future, your depiction of the future seems hokey or weird. But just a little bit in the future seems a little bit believable. Right. Also, did you know that Hitler quoted this days after it aired? Wow. In one of his speeches, Hitler talked about there, this is what happened. It was mass hysteria and used it as an example of uh, how stupid we are. <laughs> yeah. And so Orson quoted that a lot. Yeah, well, Hitler also... <laughs> thought what you thought so what do you think of that <laughs> <laughs> but i should say that this was not a brand new phenomenon there was a bbc production called broadcasting the barricades from 1926 that was a satirical wow. fake broadcast that caused a very similar controversy in the uk it was clearly a satire it was ridiculous and over the top but it was the first time in england that someone had used a fake BBC announcer and talked about a mob in the street and Hmm. depicted the destruction of Big Ben and they attacked the parliament. But it was typical British humor. I think the mob was the national movement for the abolishment of long theater cues. So it was was clearly satirical, but like (laughs) War of the Worlds, people didn't catch that. And it was so foreign to them that something is broadcast in the form of news. In fact, in the U.S., the news broadcasters had a pact that they would only do news live because listeners in the 30s believed everything they were hearing was going on in the moment. And so they thought playing recorded material was dishonest. And so The March of Time, which was a show that Orson Welles worked on, was this workaround, which seems really strange to us now, but where Time magazine created this show that was live dramatizations of the news stories from Time magazine to satisfy this hunger for live news, but it wasn't really live. Right. It makes sense, though. The president of Time called it fakery in allegiance to the truth was the term that he used. Wow. I know. It's a very modern. That strikes a chord. Yeah. Um, So there's a whole historical context that even today I don't think we totally understand the way people listen to radio in that time. When I was a kid, I turned, I was about six years old and was watching a commercial with Mel Jazz. People from Minneapolis will recognize. (laughs) But he was doing a commercial and I had seen the commercial many times. 
And I turned to my brother and said, how is he doing it the exact same way <laughs> every single time? Just that good. <laughs> um, do you guys remember, I, I did not look it up. I just came across this and I wanted to see if you had any uh, memory of the War of the Worlds TV series from the yes, 80s. Yes, because it was a sequel to the George Powell 1953 directed <laughs> movie. So yes, I watched it. Wow. It was terrible, but it was a sequel and continuation okay. of that movie that I so loved. So it is terrible. It's not worth me delving into. I mean, I remember thinking it was terrible in 1988. Wow. So. Eight-year-old Joshua cynical yeah. critic. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to know. I won't look it up then. I just, I didn't know that existed. It uh, was pretty much in the style of V. I think that's why uh, they made it. It was a knockoff of that. The penny finally dropped of like, oh, why, why do I have it in my head that like, oh yeah, I read, didn't read the book, saw the movie, no, I didn't see the movie. I had a uh, comic book version of it. A V? Yes. <laughs> no, actually, I did. <laughs> that as well, yes. Uh, that's a joke you don't want to make with Because if there's a comic book version of it, he owned it. <laughs> oh, you don't even know. Well, before we wrap this up, first of all, again, this is our 100th episode. Uh, it's been an honor and a thrill and absolutely fantastic to do 100 episodes. I can't wait for the next 100 episodes. And it was really cool to finally talk about War of the Worlds. Mm. We have for over a year looked at each other and said, we're not going to do War of the Worlds. So we've never discussed this with each other <laughs> in our private lives and all the other work we do together. Uh, our families hang out together. And if War of the Worlds were ever to come up, we'd all look at each other and go, we nope, just nope, slap nope, the nope. person who brought it up. <laughs> it's really awkward. We weird. have to wait. And so there it is. I finally got all that off my chest. It's also interesting to find out. I thought for sure you and I would be at much more odds over that second act. I knew you liked it. When I listen to it, I'm like, oh, this is so Joshua. He'll, he'll like I'm going to find some desperate way to approve of this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that I did. <laughs> and it was very interesting to hear your take on it, Tim, I for the first time. I so love those first couple minutes. And so it's very interesting to hear someone come at it brand new and think it drags. Yeah, it really was like... And let's go back to the band. Like, just get to it. Bring on the Martians. <laughs> Wait, is this a Martian band? <laughs> uh, that was my Cantina song. Oh, I got it. No, I didn't know if I was doing it you got right. Bernard Herman over here. <laughs> Yeah, I think that we all can agree that, especially in the first act, there are some really powerful scenes. Yeah. yeah. Just before we wrap it up, Tim, what was your reaction to that? Because when I'm listening to him, like, I don't remember the first time I heard it anymore. Oh, like you said, when the reporter is talking about the heat ray and then they just go silent, I could have intelligently just predicted, like, something that probably happens. But when it really happens and you're listening and just cuts them out from under you. It's palpable. It's really a gut punch. Yeah. And they pull it off again and again, and it's a gut punch every time. I watched my daughter a few years ago uh, listening to this on record, and when it went silent, that first reaction of hers looking at the turntable, like, yeah, something's wrong, and then looking at me, and then they come back on in her face, oh, oh, <laughs> oh crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll start this off with our traditional vote. It's not a classic. <laughs> it's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. It really is. The first 40 minutes especially are some of the best uh, work in radio drama ever done. And so as we talk always about the social impact of the actual broadcast so much, 
it is good to remember that the actual broadcast itself, the actual show, was really good. <laughs> and that gets yeah. lost. And no one talks about it. No one's ever heard it. They, uh, they know of it. And if it wasn't so well executed, there would not have been anyone who would have reacted, yeah, who would have called the police station. Yes. And sir? Yeah, I'd say it's obviously a classic. I love it. And it's very interesting to take this moment to attempt to separate it from the history of the program. And what it made me realize is, what I can't do is separate it from my own personal history. It's so right. enmeshed in my mm. love of old-time radio and in my childhood, and every version of this story is an important part of my own history. So it was a valiant attempt, but I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> I just love it to pieces, regardless of its strengths or weaknesses. Um, classic. Tim, what'd you think? Um, I would also say classic. Uh, it's a real testament as well to as much as I bristle at Orson Welles for the egotism that just exudes off of him. 23 years old. I know, yeah, right? Man. Right? Um, it's fantastic. It's phenomenal. It's groundbreaking. It'd be groundbreaking today. I just Gotta give it to the man, and I hate doing it, but I gotta do it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you uh, so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, Tim, tell them some stuff. Uh, every episode, I tell people to go visit ghoulishdelights.com because that's the home of this podcast. You can find other episodes of this podcast. Uh, it's also a great way to get a hold of us. But also, each episode on our podcast includes some polls where we invite people to, hey, vote for what you think of this episode on this poll. Um, and people might wonder, what do you do with that information? And for the most part, nothing. <laughs> um, but it's the 100th episode, so I figured I would take a look at what information is on there right now and report back. Take this with a little grain of salt because it took us a few episodes to sort of get the poll the way we wanted it to be. I have, as of today, added the poll back to the first few episodes. So if you listened to House in Cypress Canyon and thought, I'd like to vote for that, you can go do it now. But... And now back to Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. <laughs> um, so here is, we had three shows that tied for the most votes for not worth re-listening to. <laughs> Definitely not a classic. Can I guess? Yes. Dave Sinatra got fat. That is one of them. Spawn of the subhuman. That is the other. And then uh, uh, War Third. of the Word. <laughs> Third one's the harder one. I have no idea. The Demon Tree. Oh, oh really? Yes. Yes. That was one of my picks. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Uh, so there's some ties in here, but here's the 10 highest ranked episodes, although it's actually more than 10 because there's some ties. So 10th most highest ranked episode. This is, has received the most classic votes. Mm -hmm. uh, is Murder Castle received 10. This is a classic votes. High yeah. five to Murder Castle. Mm -hmm. uh, receiving 11 votes is a four-way tie. Between Porchlight, wow. Behind the Locked so Door. That's Nightfall, right? Porch yeah. Light, yeah. They got behind some the loyal door. followers. Yeah. Uh, Carmilla. Yeah, okay. Cold Equations. Mm. Number eight is a tie for 12 votes each on a country road and Leinengen versus the Ants. On a Country Road is one of my favorites. Line Engine versus the Ants is one of mine. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Number seven, 13 votes each is The Horn and Dark Journey. Man, I love The Horn. I love Dark Journey. <laughs> <laughs> Number six, uh, 14 votes, Casting the Runes. Yes. Number five, 15 votes each, Whence Came You and The Gibbering Things. A oh, strange tie, but I like right, it. Right. <laughs> I like both of That's them a That's a double lot. feature. Four, uh, 17 votes, Northern Lights. And uh, you guys have any guesses for the top three? No God, ties. Yeah. Uh, That'll be thing in the Forble board is up board. there. Forble board is number one, 25 yeah, votes. Yeah, of course it is. Uh, number three is Ghost Hunt. Nice. Oh, yes. 19. 
Number two, this one might surprise you, 21 votes, The Ravine. The Ravine is a classic. It's, it has spawned a lot of conversation. Um, Were people mad at me? <laughs> I don't read any of those people, so say whatever you want. <laughs> they come back and tell me, don't read it. So thank <laughs> you, folks, who you. have been voting in these polls. We, we do appreciate it. It's really fun to see how yeah. people react to these things because it's different than us. Anyways, please go visit ghoulishdelights.com. You can get a hold of us through uh, Facebook, through Instagram, our contact page. Um, just let us know what you think. Yes, and if you are interested in supporting this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash themorals and uh, find out about what sort of exciting rewards we offer. Um, we have a members-only podcast. We have buttons. We have T-shirts. We have all sorts of fun stuff. We also have a new reward for our next financial goal. And should we tell them about it? Mm-hmm. Sure. Because I'd love to know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. um, These guys don't tell me stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are uh, uh, on the Patreon, we've been doing some secret episodes that are a little off the beaten path. And we're going to do one that is Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a special guest, C. Robert Cargill, who, among his many other writings, including uh, uh, Sea of Rust, the book. But he's also the screenwriter for Doctor Strange, the movie. And when we say Doctor Strange, we're talking about the radio show that Marvel put out in only New York in the late 60s. Right? Yes. And it didn't air long or very far. And in fact, a little piece of trivia on that, uh, Stan Lee himself drove over and gave him permission to do it. Like, yeah, go ahead. It was like a handshake. <laughs> he just drove by. It was like a cameo from the new Marvel movies. <laughs> he just like drove by and waved. <laughs> <laughs> That's exciting, man. We're going to have cars along. so much fun. Yeah. Nice. Well, fantastic. Um, we, uh, speaking of Patreon stuff, uh, we're going to uh, next fulfill another uh, Patreon reward. Our $150 mark also got hit. So War of the World was for $100. Mm-hmm. And we said we'd do three skeleton key if we hit 150 which we did. So we're doing that next from Escape, the three skeleton key. Until then, look out! And believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. that never loses favor. The ever-popular Stardust. Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Just get to it. <laughs>